Good morning. Good morning. Come on in and grab a seat. If I could get the PowerPoint up on the screen, that would be a big help. Uh, you will notice there are no handouts. The next person to complain, well, you don't want to be the next person to complain. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, uh, I'm <laughs> proceeding on the assumption that you don't need notes this morning for what we're going to cover, but um, you know it, it will be available on the on the church website. The video will be there, and so you can go back and review if there is something you wanted to jot down. And if you desperately need something in writing, you can always feel free to, to email me, and I can probably get you, get you something. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, you might recall a few weeks ago, I told you there was going to be this mini break. Obviously, the last couple of Sundays when I was away, and now today, and uh, well, next Sunday is Easter, so we don't have adult Sunday school, but the Sunday after, we're actually going to be in 1 Corinthians in the adult Sunday school hour. Uh, the reason for this is pretty simple. We've arrived at chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, and you are probably as aware as I am as to the fact that there are a couple of controversial issues, contentious issues, potentially contentious issues in this chapter, the first being the gift of tongues and the second being the role of women. I didn't think it would be the best setting to deal with these in the worship hour because it requires a little more of an informal approach, classroom type approach and we always have visitors in the worship hour. And so I thought, well, maybe the Sunday school hour is the best time to address these. And I know we only get not even a quarter of the congregation. But uh, again, it's on the website and then people can go and just watch it if they want to. So that was my reasoning. We are going to look at chapter 14 later today in worship. But I'm not going to speak to the gift of tongues nor the role of women. I'm just going to proceed on the assumption that people will either be present in this Sunday school hour when we address them or avail themselves of the videos. So that's the plan today, two weeks from now. And so to begin with, I invite you to follow along as I read this chapter for us. Paul begins, pursue love. Notice the immediate connection with the preceding chapter. He has just waxed eloquent on the very nature, essence of love. Now he issues this exhortation, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? 
So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Would have all prophesied and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face. He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Quite the chapter, is it not? Fascinating on many levels. And again, those two potentially controversial issues arise Firstly, the gift of tongues. Secondly, the role of women. And so today we are going to do our best to speak to the first. 
This subject has generated a lot, you know this, of discussion. It has generated a lot of emotion. And this makes it an extremely difficult subject to, to navigate. I first, I first worked through it um, 30 years ago. 21, 22 years of age, 30 years ago, in the context of the Toronto blessing. Anyone remember that? The Toronto blessing. It was huge. About 30 years ago, big church just off the 427 in Toronto, and they were beyond speaking in tongues. They were barking like dogs and quacking like ducks, and there were all sorts of manifestations of the Spirit and people were coming from so-called manifestations of the spirit. And people were coming from all over the world to try to catch the fire and then take the spirit back to their churches so that they could spread the, uh, the so-called Toronto blessing. And so it was in the midst of that. I was in, in university at the time. And some of my, my friends, uh, believers, undoubtedly were dabbling in this. And I hadn't really looked at it to that point in my Christian journey and so began to study it. And I have gone back to it on occasion ever since then as, as need has arisen. And I've revised and refined uh, my notes over the years. I reviewed them on a number of occasions. And so today I'm going to share them with you. And basically, over these 30 years, I've boiled it all down to five questions. I think I, I framed the five questions maybe about 15 or 20 years ago. And so whenever I've, I've gone back, these are the five questions I've just continually asked, wrestled with, studied, read on. And so for what it's worth, that's what you're going to get this morning. The first question is this, and the obvious place to begin. Question number one, burning question. What is the gift of tongues? I think that's where we need to begin. What are we talking about? I'll give you my punchline and then I'll seek to explain it or defend it. Um, as far as I can tell from the word of God, the gift of tongues is simply the ability to speak in a known language unknown to the speaker. That is the gift of tongues. It is the ability to speak in a known language, uh, but unknown to the speaker. So it would be my ability to stand up now and all of a sudden start speaking in uh, Mandarin. That would be the gift of tongues or to start speaking in Romanian or Korean or some other language. I don't know. So the gift of tongues, the ability to speak a known language unknown to the speaker. Why do I make that assertion? Basically, for two reasons. Here's the first. It is confirmed in Acts chapter 2. So I invite you to turn there with me. I think this is a pivotal passage, obviously, when it comes to answering this question. What are we talking about when we make reference to the gift of tongues? Acts 2 is perhaps, well, I think undoubtedly, actually, uh, the clearest passage when it comes to formulating some kind of definition. So Acts 2 verse 8. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
Now the word is glossa and the word glossa is used almost 50 times in the, uh, in the book of Acts. And I think about three quarters of those occasions, it's translated language and the remainder of those occasions, it's translated as tongue, but it's the same word. And at the sound of this multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them. That is the apostolic band speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Well, they're Galileans. Therefore, we expect them to be speaking a certain language, right? Uh, Aramaic, perhaps some der- you know, derivative of Hebrew, possibly. Maybe they were speaking in Greek, but they're Galileans. We know that their language ability will be restricted to those of Galileans. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then to make it really clear, Luke goes on to emphasize that there are about 15 different language groups represented. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own Tongues, the mighty works of God. So the gift of tongues is clearly what? It is the ability to speak in a known language, unknown to the speaker. There are two additional references in the book of Acts, Acts 10.46 and Acts 19.6. And there is absolutely nothing in these texts to suggest that the gift of tongues has morphed or changed into something other than what it was on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It is clearly the ability to speak in a known language unknown to the speaker. So that's the first reason why I gravitate toward that definition. The second reason is this. I believe it's confirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the text we read. So back you go. First, we're going to jump around a lot this morning. I don't apologize for that. There's no other way than to jump around in Scripture to get a grasp on this subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 10 Paul says there are doubtless many different languages in the world. He's speaking of known languages and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker, a foreigner to me in the law. It's the book of Isaiah. So the old Testament scriptures, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. Those are known languages. It turns out to be the Assyrians in the context because Isaiah is foretelling the Assyrian invasion. So by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people? And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And as we look then at chapters 12, 13, and 14 and the multiple references, again, it's the same term, glossa, tongue, or language. I don't see any reason to conclude that in any case, in any instance, under any circumstances, the gift of tongues is anything different from, departs from this very simple definition. Again, it is the ability to speak in a known language, unknown to the speaker. 
Now, there's a third point in the development of this definition, and it's simply this, the objections, because there are then four key objections to that definition which I've given you. The first objection emerges from, well, let me explain, first of all, that the objections, those who would levy these objections, what they are then basically arguing for is, is simply this. Look, this, what you've just said, I don't disagree with it. That the gift of tongues is the ability to speak a known language unknown to the speaker. I don't disagree with that, but that's only one type of gift of tongues. There are actually two types, two kinds, two categories. And the second type or the second category, it's not the ability to speak in a known language unknown to the speaker. It is what we describe or call ecstatic speech. So it's not a language. It's actually incoherent. It's not recognizable. It doesn't match any language on the face of the earth. You string together what is said. There may be syllables. There may be sounds. There may be the odd words scattered in, but it would not fit any linguistic criteria to qualify as some sort of human language. And so some would say, I have no problem with your first definition, but I think that there's something else going on there in Scripture and I think it is this ecstatic speech. And there are these four arguments that are normally made for this. The first argument is out of chapter 14. It's what we read in verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him but he utters. See, here it is. Mysteries in the spirit. These are mysteries. It's a mysterious language. And so some will say that. The problem is this. Paul doesn't say it's a mysterious language. That's a fault of contemporary man and our understanding. We hear the word mystery, we immediately think in terms of the mysterious. It's never what it means for the Apostle Paul. A mystery is a reference to what? Something that was formerly unknown, but is now revealed. And so Paul is not speaking here of the nature of the language emitting from the individual. He is speaking as to the content of what is revealed. And so it would be a completely erroneous conclusion to derive from this verse, well, that which, these mysteries, well, that is a mysterious language or mysterious sounds. That is not at all what Paul is saying there. The second argument that is made is back in chapter 13. Whoops. Verse 1. And so Jonathan was here with you a couple of Sundays ago. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. It's a different category. There are the tongues of men, human languages. I get it. But then there are the tongues of angels. And, and the gift of tongues, I, I don't disagree. It is the ability to speak in an un, a known language, unknown to the speaker. But I think there's also these tongues of angels, this ecstatic speech. That, that, that is riddled with problems. I mean, to begin with, what biblical evidence supports the notion that angels address one another in ecstatic, unintelligible speech? There's absolutely none. It's riddled with problems as well, which comes back to our angeology. Um, when I speak, it, it, it involves what? Lungs, right? Emitting air, vocal cords, throat, tongue, lips, the whole thing. Angels don't have any of those things. They're spiritual beings. I mean, how, what does it mean for them to communicate? It's like when God speaks, what do we mean by that? He's spirit. I sure hope we don't think 
We mean he speaks like we speak physically. Uh, we have entered into something completely different. So the idea that there is this, this category of angel talk, angel speak, and that ecstatic speech is entering into and engaging in that. Well, that is just built on a host of presuppositions, none of which is defensible in the light of Scripture. I mean, just even in the context, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, isn't Paul simply using hyperbole? Isn't that the, the, the literary device that he's employing in the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 13 as he seeks to make his main point, which is what? No matter the magnitude or the grandiosity of our spiritual experience or service or whatever, if you don't have love, it is all completely pointless, worthless, and meaningless. The third argument is this. You can go there if you like. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Actually, do go there. It's good to see these things in their context. Romans 8, 26. And Paul there writes the following. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, right? And so some will go to this verse and say, well, there you've got it. You've got this second category of the gift of tongues, ecstatic speech, these groanings too deep for words. Two obvious, two very obvious problems with that just in the context. It's the spirit himself who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's actually nothing in the verse to suggest this is something we participate in or experience ourselves. It is the Holy Spirit making intercession on our behalf. And even, even, let, let's just grant the assumption that this is something that emits from us. There is nothing in the context nor anywhere else in Scripture whereby any of the biblical authors equate these groanings too deep for words with the gift of tongues. And so it is, a, it is a leap, a drastic leap to get from one to the other. The fourth argument comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So turn over there. I'm going to exhaust you, put you through your paces this morning as we move around God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And here Paul is boasting, right? Tongue in cheek. Verse 3, and I know that this man, referencing himself, was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told and which man may not utter. And so some will hone in on that phrase in verse 4. Oh, see, he heard things that cannot be told. In the King James Version, it's translated as unspeakable words. In the New King James Version, it's translated as inexpressible words. And so some have concluded, you see, there is this category. There is such a thing as unspeakable words. There is such a thing as inexpressible words. And so these are just sounds, ecstatic speech that emits from the individual. And people will then equate this with the gift of tongues. But again, that contradicts the clear meaning of the text because Paul makes it clear that the words aren't inexpressible because they are incoherent or unintelligible. 
but because he wasn't permitted to speak them. That was the issue. And so Paul says that in the rest of the verse. These words, the things that he heard, they could not be told. It was not lawful for a man to utter them. So to get from the verse to the gift of tongues, again, is a leap that requires, I think, a a lot of presuppositions. Is there any indication that these words are somehow related to the gift of tongues? So those are the four arguments that are usually made. The four key texts. That as I've engaged with friends going all the way back again, 30 years and on different occasions, these are the, are the four principal texts they will go to. And um, I remain unconvinced regarding any of them. I think it's a, a distortion of each, each text. I think when we simply hone in on what is obvious, what is clear in Scripture on the basis of Acts 2 and the references, the verses I, I read earlier in 1 Corinthians 14, that the gift of tongues, here's what we can be certain of. That certainly in that day, it was the, the ability, this gift, on the part of an individual to speak in a known language, unknown to that individual. So there's my answer to the first question. What is the gift of tongues? It is the ability to speak in a known language, a human language, unknown to the speaker. Second question is this. What purpose does the gift of tongues serve? Paul uses a word in chapter 14, which is very interesting. It's not used in reference to all of the spiritual gifts, but he uses it in reference in the context to the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And it is the word sign. Verse 22, thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So this is something unique to certain gifts. And so I reject that categorization with which we're very familiar. And I have used it, but I haven't used it for a while and I'm never going to use it again. Between the supernatural and natural gifts or the spectacular and the ordinary gifts, I don't think that categorization exists because they're all supernatural. They all come from the spirit of God. But the categories I think scripture does point to is uh, the differentiating between sign gifts and non-sign gifts. And the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy in this context anyway are clearly identified, marked out, delineated as being sign gifts. Signs of what? Prophecy aside, we're focusing on the gift of tongues. Firstly, it is a sign of God's gathering of the nations into the church. And so in Acts 1.8, no need to turn there. We're all familiar with it. Christ speaking to his apostles just before his ascension. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, in Judea, Jews, in Samaria, Samaritans, And to the uttermost parts of the earth, Gentiles. That is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is simply then indicating the fulfillment of that commission. Uh, You're going to receive power. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see then as we read the book of Acts, building on Acts 1.8, there are three successive fulfillments, stages, In the fulfillment of this great promise. First, 
the Jews, beginning in Acts 2. Secondly, the Samaritans, beginning in Acts 8. And then thirdly, the Gentiles, beginning with Cornelius, right, in Acts chapter 10. In each of these references, we read of the baptism, Christ, by Christ, with the Spirit, into the body of Christ. There's an individual present in each of these three phases. Who's there? Peter is there every time. He is the common denominator in each of these stages. And the prevalence of what? The gift of tongues. Why? Because it is a sign. This ability to speak in a known language unknown to the speaker. And Peter tells us that. Go to the book of Acts and look at what we read in chapter 11. As he returns to Jerusalem, having visited Cornelius, having witnessed then the baptism of the Spirit, having been present himself, he returns to Jerusalem to the Jews. He gives an account. And look at what he says in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them, those Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. It was a sign, an indisputable sign. And they glorify God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You get it again. This time it's not Peter. Or is it Peter? I've forgotten off the top of my head. Chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles. Yes, it is Peter. Chapter 15, verse 6. They're back in Jerusalem again because there is this brouhaha regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And the gift of tongues is the sign. All of it indicates, as you go from Pentecost to the first conversion of the Samaritans, to then the conversion of the Gentiles, Peter's presence, the baptism of the Spirit, the gift of tongues. All of this is indicating what? God's ingathering of the nations into the church. If you've been in our study in Genesis, you can build, well, we covered that, you can build the bridge between Pentecost and what? Babel. The nations are spread over the face of the earth. God confuses man's language. All of these languages now. And then he calls Abram and then Isaac and then Jacob. And he entrusts his oracles to the nation of Israel alone. And on the day of Pentecost, it is all undone. What was scattered at Babel is now gathered back into God's people, God's flock, God's kingdom, God's church, Christ's 
bride and the gift of tongues whereby people then actually hear the truth proclaimed in their own language in these successive stages from Jews to Samaritans to Gentiles is a sign of this pivotal moment in the history of God's plan of redemption. Coupled with that, and rather horrific really, it is a sign of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. The sign of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. That is what Paul has told us back in chapter 14. Right? Verse 22. Now, verse 20. Brothers, don't be children. Okay? Don't be infants in your thinking. Be infants in evil, sure. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, and it's a reference to Isaiah 28, it is written by people of strange tongues. And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And so Isaiah is prophesying like an old man, like a madman, right? Way back, 8th century BC. And he's warning the people, prophesying in intelligible language, words they can understand, repent or else they refuse to listen. And the prophecy is what? Well, God is now going to bring judgment. And you will know this judgment is come when what? What was an intelligible message becomes unintelligible because the sounds of foreigners' languages will ring in your ears. It's the Assyrian invasion. Paul jumps all over that and says, you know, it's what's happened in our day, our time. Not only is there this positive sign the gift of tongues, the ability to speak in a known language unknown to the speaker, not only is it a sign of the ingathering of the nations, but it is a sign to those Jews who refuse to repent and believe and turn to Christ, incorporated, brought into the body of Christ, of their estrangement and alienation and separation from God. Paul teaches that tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Isaiah anticipated a time when men speaking foreign languages would enter Jerusalem. And this would be a sign of God's judgment upon Israel. The nation of Israel was never truly restored through the exile. God's son came proclaiming the message of God in simple, comprehensible terms. The nation rejected him. The gift of tongues was a sign indicating the estrangement that exists between God and those who reject his message. That is the, the gift's purpose. Yes, it does serve to edify. More on that later. But principally, it is numbered among the sign gifts. There's something even greater in view here, significant in terms of the history of redemption. So this leads then to a third obvious question. Well, is this gift for today? My answer is no. Why? Because the need for the sign passed, therefore the need for the gift. And I would argue, I would maintain, therefore, that that gift of tongues passed when the need for the sign passed. And therefore passed with the conclusion of the apostolic age. And it is fascinating, just as you read the books of the New Testament in the order in which they were written. 
uh, the last books written by Paul, the pastorals, right? First Timothy, second Timothy. And it's fascinating. He never mentions these gifts. No mention of them. Not even a passing reference to these gifts. But what does he say? He stresses the importance of holding to the truth, the faith, the deposit, the treasure, or what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the complete revelation of God as found in the word of God. The fourth question, if for the sake of argument, let's say the gift of tongues, that ability, uh, that gift uh, is for today. How are we doing for time? Ooh, is for today. What would it look like? So we were convinced. Let's suppose all of us in a grace community church, we became convinced that, hey, this is a gift for today. And the elders got together. Okay, well, let's uh, start incorporating it in our times of worship. What, what would this look like according to uh, the parameters set down, defined by God's word? Well, just notice a few things. First of all, the nature. We would still argue that it is the ability to speak in a known language unknown to the speaker because of the lack of biblical evidence that it's anything other than that. So we'd maintain that, that if you have the ability right now to speak in Czech or Bulgarian or Swahili, the language you've never studied, you do not know, but you just have the ability to speak it. Well, okay. That is the gift of tongues, the ability to speak in a known language unknown to the speaker. Second thing we would insist upon then is the origin of this gift that we would recognize that, okay, the origin of all gifts is the Holy spirit uh, that means they will not be induced by artificial means. This is one thing that has concerned me with my many experiences with the so-called gift of tongues, of static speech, especially in a corporate setting over the years, is that I, I think it is, they're simply induced by artificial means. Um, one, what would you say, fan of the gift of tongues, a static speech, state of the following, give me a group of people who will do what I tell them to do, sing, relax, anticipate, and go through the right motions, and it will only be a matter of time before some of them will speak ecstatically. All right, so it can be manipulated. If you have the right light, right setting, right music, right whatever, um, it is not difficult to evoke ecstatic speech from people. Well, that, that's, that's manipulation. That has nothing to do with a work of the Spirit. So if we were to practice it today, we want to make sure that that's not what we were doing, is simply creating this sort of environment, emotional ecstasy, uh, through manipulative means, whereby people have this kind of experience. Thirdly, we'd be very clear on the purpose of them, that they are a sign, right? And also that they are meant to uh, edify. Like all spiritual gifts, they are given for the edification of the church. And so this then would govern our practice of these gifts. And so what would our practice look like? First of all, go back to chapter 12. We would insist, we would make it clear that not every believer speaks in tongues. Right? Chapter 12, verse 30. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? His point is what? No. So that's the first thing we'd want to make very clear, especially uh, to counter those who actually view the gift of tongues as some sort of mark of greater spirituality and as a second plane in their spiritual experience and something all believers must attain to. We say, well, that completely contradicts the word of God. It's a gift. And like all gifts, um, the spirit distributes them as he pleases. And so not everyone will have this gift. 
The second thing we want to make clear in terms of its corporate practice is this. The gift of tongues is not proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we saw that in chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I can remember getting a heated debate with one of my friends years ago. He belongs to the Pentecostal Assemblies of, of Canada, Assemblies of God. And I took him to a statement of faith. Statement of faith, this you must believe. And right there in their statement of faith, yes, baptism of the Holy Spirit and the mark, the essential mark, always present of the baptism of the Holy Spirit will be speaking in tongues. How do you reconcile that with this text? How do you reconcile that with the word of God? And so we'd want to be very clear on that, that, um, well, not everyone will have this gift. And it most certainly is not proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For that matter, it certainly is not proof of some sort of deeper spiritual experience. I mean, look at what Paul says in chapter 14, verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. No problem with that. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And so the gift of tongues in and of itself is no indication of deeper spirituality, the presence of the spirit of God or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we want to be very clear on these things because what's happened in the church of Corinth and what happens with many believers today and within many churches is the gift of tongues becomes a badge of spirituality. It's completely antithetical to everything Paul is saying in this chapter, completely antithetical, which tells me what? They've got something drastically and dreadfully wrong. It is not a mark of deeper spirituality. It is not a mark of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It certainly wouldn't be something every believer would possess. And so as we got together, we say, okay, well, we are going to include this gift and give an opportunity for those who have this gift, this ability to speak in a known language unknown to them. And so here's what we would insist upon. We would insist, based on chapter 14, verse 27, that only three at most are allowed to speak in tongues in our gathering. That's what he says, right? Verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most. So we restrict it. The ideal number would be two, but on occasion we would allow maybe three, but definitely no more, which is interesting. We would also insist based on that verse that only one person may speak in tongues at a time. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most and each in turn. You're not to talk at the same time. You're not to talk over one another. It is to be orderly one after the other. And then we would also insist that unless there is someone present who has the gift of interpretation, so the ability to translate that language and not only translate that language, but then commu communicate and convey the significance of the message that is being expressed, then you are to keep quiet. And not use your gift of tongues. That's what he says in verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. Speak to himself and speak to God. We would also insist on this. Look, speaking in tongues will not involve a loss of self-control. Which it often does in many settings. Which is completely, again, antithetical to what Paul insists upon in this chapter. It will not involve a loss of self-control. Verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent, which implies what? They have control over whether they speak or not. This is something they can control. This is something they can start and stop whenever they like. 
This idea, it's there in the history of the church and it's prevalent today and I fear it's growing in some quarters. This idea that the greatest mark of the Spirit's work is some sort of ecstatic experience, inexpressible experience in which I'm outside of myself and I've lost control. My friends, whenever I see that, oh, the alarm bells that go off. The mark, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. It is the ability to control ourselves. And it is the very thing Paul is arguing for in the midst of the Corinthian chaos when it is an absolute free-for-all in their public gatherings. He is arguing for order and decency. And only one must speak at a time. And if there is no interpretation, hey, keep quiet. The last thing we would insist upon, I just stated it based on verses 39 and 40. Tongues must be exercised decently and in order. Yes, to be controversial. Yes, I guess, to pick a fight with some of our friends. I find it interesting to compare this list, 1 Corinthians 14, with the practice of most churches today, which believe the gift of tongues is for today. Any corporate experience I've had of the gift of tongues completely disregards what Paul so clearly states in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 concerning its public use, right? Which makes me think what? Something is dreadfully wrong, amiss. Fifth question I work through is this. So how do we explain a static speech? We don't deny the reality of it. Some people actually experience it how do we explain it i'm convinced there are three possible explanations they don't all overlap they're not all at play at the same time but i would ascribe one of these factors to certain times when i have seen and encountered ecstatic speech at times it is simply the diabolical all right you need to remember i mean in new testament days the Greek and Egyptian mystery religions were already using a static speech. It's common practice in their gatherings, in the pagan temples, in their times of worship. And so we would see that as being diabolical, right? And undoubtedly, as uh, we've seen it outside of Christianity, maybe even at times close to the borders of Christianity in the past couple thousand years, I think there's something to this, the diabolical. Because where there is confusion and disorder, guess what, my friends? The devil's never far behind, right? The second explanation is this, the sensational. Uh, In history, there is evidence of sporadic appearances of ecstatic speech within what we would call the parameters of the church, Uh, but they have rarely been the part of major movements of piety or reformation. They've almost always been fringe movements. Um, And so I would explain it simply on the basis of the sensational Um, uh, some people see that and say, well, that's got to be a work of God's spirit. Friends, the Mormons and the Shakers were using a static speech as early as the 1830s. Roman Catholic charismatics today use a static speech. What's anything that got to do with the spirit of God? We don't need the spirit to explain a static speech. It can be created. It can be evoked in the right conditions under the right circumstances And I would simply reference this then as the sensational. And then the third, which I think is common, 
And I have far greater sensitivity for this and actually have a category for this in terms of Christian experience is the emotional, the emotional. Listen closely to what I'm going to say. There are times when words escape us. From praise to lament, those two extremes. From praise, those seasons when the joy of the Lord wells up within us and the spirit of thanksgiving to the opposite, polar opposite, where we are, the, the, the clouds are unbelievably thick, the valley immeasurably deep and long, and we don't know where we are or where we are going. There are seasons, times in Christian experience when words escape us. There are occasions, times, when our emotions run ahead of our words. The result might very well be, I would not deny this, it might very well be some sort of ecstatic speech. And I would never, ever dare question or doubt the reality of that. But what I would argue is this, it isn't the gift of tongues. It isn't the gift of tongues. It is simply an emotional experience. It may be a very legitimate experience in which our emotions, the weight of the hour and the moment is upon us from one pole to the opposite, whatever the circumstances might be. And the heart runs ahead of the head and it finds expression in sounds that are difficult to articulate that are unintelligible. I don't deny it at all, and I would never, ever dare say that's a bad thing. But I would hedge it and say, it's not the gift of tongues, though. It's something just different. There you have it. Five questions. Any questions I didn't hit on? Oh, this is the part I was dreading. <laughs> no. Um, no hands are up. Good. Five questions. Yes, as I keep my eyes down. Um, what is the gift of tongues? I think that's the big one, right? And where there is a lot of disagreement. And again, let me go back and simply say, I have friends, I know believers who disagree with me on this. And I respect them. I trust they respect me. And we have to agree to disagree. We have to agree to strongly disagree at times. I just don't think there's any evidence whatsoever in the gift of tongues was anything other than this ability to speak in a language, an unknown, a lang known language unknown to the speaker. Uh, what purpose does the gift of tongues serve? That, that's completely absent from most modern day discussions. It's because it's been so personalized. The gift of tongues is so about me. Which, which, again, the alarm bell should go off because the gifts are actually given for the edification of the church. But for so many people, it's a personal thing. It's about me. It's about my walk with the Lord. It's about what the Spirit's doing in me. It's just, it's, just, it's just confirming how close I am to God and how wonderful our relationship is. It's something God has given me to convey to me his love for me. I'm, you know, I, I, I can respect that. I don't find any of it in the Word of God. And I think it can actually be a little dangerous when we begin to base... Uh, our relationship with God and the health of our relationship with God on the basis of an experience as opposed to what the word of God declares 
concerning our relationship with him. I think when we do that, we are opening ourselves up to potential pitfalls and a whole lot of problems because you know as well as I do, emotions come and go, experiences are here, they are gone tomorrow, but the word of God remains. The third question, is it for today? Well, I think I've answered that. If it were for today, for the sake of argument, what would it look like? That's a fascinating question. And again, it gives me pause because any experience I have had, and from what I know of what goes on in most churches today, which make allowance for this gift, it, it is a complete contradiction of the parameters and the requirements that Paul has so clearly laid out in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And then how do we explain it? A lot of things going on. There is, I think, at times outside of Christianity, certainly the diabolical, the sensational explains far more than we probably care to admit. And then there is this a category for the emotional. That I, um, maybe you've been there. You, oh, that's what that was. Maybe that, the pennies dropped for some of you. I don't know. But there was that season when I just, there were no words. And there were just cries from the pit of my stomach. And there was, I don't know what that was. Well, I'm not saying that was a bad thing. I'm not saying, you know, oh, don't do that. Simply saying, it's not the gift of tongues, though. Let's just be clear on what's what and what isn't what. So the five questions. If, in all seriousness, you do have any burning questions or need clarification, you can give me a call and you can send me an email. I won't promise to answer it quickly. I've got a backlog there, but it will be there anyway. And it will be, you know, in due order. And when I get there eventually, Arthur. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem in the early church with um, uh, Montanus. Um, I mean, he's actually heretical, so he may not be the best example, but he you know, had the prophetesses and others who followed him, and he engaged in this kind of um, ecstatic speech. And there are other elements of this when you get into the um, mysticism of the Middle Ages. And that um, experience you know, with the monastics are pursuing union with God. And therefore, this experience that transcends the mind and is inexpressible, where there is then this experience, direct ontological experience of the love of God, which then perhaps finds expression in the ecstatic. And then, yes, it's really in the early 1800s where this really takes off. With the advent then of Pentecostalism, but at the same time, which is disconcerting, the Shakers and the Mormons, all these groups are having the same experience. It looks the same. It's the same thing. It's odd, right? So you, you do get these moments throughout the, the history of the church. But um, as, I, as I said, I, I'm unaware of anyone you know, that we would look back to as sort of the pillars in church history who would have had a category for this kind of gift of tongues they wouldn't have no is that helpful all right let's pray together our heavenly father we do thank you for the gift of the holy spirit we thank you for his indwelling presence 
We thank you for how he points us to the Lord Jesus and makes much of Christ. We thank you for how he makes uh, the word come alive, uh, whereby we grow in our knowledge and application of it. We thank you for his work of regeneration and work of sanctification, for that fruit he is producing in us, that Christ-likeness, which is so pleasing to you and glorifying to your name. We praise you for all of your good gifts. May we never disparage them. May we never take them for granted. But may we offer up uh, our thanksgiving each and every day. And out of thanksgiving, seek to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, offering up thanks to you through the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another as we submit to Christ. May it be evident in our relationships may be evident in our attitudes, in our words, in our thoughts, in every sphere of our lives. We thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, give us a measure of unity regarding what is a, a very difficult subject and issue. We pray that we would love one another and be understanding toward one another. We pray, our Father, for our time together now that our conversations might be edifying and encouraging. And as we worship in a few moments, we thank you that you are in our midst. That the Spirit unites us together into Christ's body. That Christ rules and reigns through the preaching and proclamation of your word. And so may it be real indeed to us this day. And may you perform a good work in each and every one. In his matchless name we pray. Amen.